Well, good morning again. If you would, your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We've been spending a few weeks here in Isaiah chapter 9 and uh, unpackaging this wonderful picture that Isaiah has presented for us of Jesus Christ and looking confidently, if you will, to the, to the fact of his presence with us now, the fact that we know much of what has been discussed and prophesied in this passage and looking forward to what is yet to be fulfilled. And so we're in the midst, if you will, of what Isaiah is speaking of, and we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into this passage. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this wonderful day. We are so grateful for the work of grace that you have wrought in our lives, that you have um, taken us, as we have been singing about this morning, uh, sinners outside of your will, bent on committing sin and captured by it, but you saw fit, Lord, to redeem us to yourself and to bring us into your presence, and we rejoice over that wonderful truth. Thank you so much for your amazing grace, and we do proclaim that you are indeed great. You are a great God. We are people who um, have been changed and transformed by you. We are people of your own possession, and we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may reflect the wonders of this new creation that you have wrought. May we be overwhelmed and and in wonder over all that you have done for us. May the joy of our salvation, your salvation towards us, never depart from our minds or our lips. May, May we be people who are quick to communicate the wonders of our own redemption, telling others of the wonders of your grace, communicating the glories of Jesus Christ and the rest and the peace that we can that we know only through his finished work. Thank you, Lord, for giving over to us Christ's righteousness, for giving to us standing in him, for him bearing our sin and our guilt and the burden and all the wrath that was poured out upon him for our wickedness. Thank you, Lord, for this this great story of redemption. Thank you for such a wondrous, wondrous thought of all that you have done for us. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us this morning from the buffeting of the evil one, that you would indeed protect our minds, that our minds would not be drifting and concerned and consumed with other things, make us to be alert and help us to be wakeful, Lord, and and to be attentive to your word. Um, This brief moment that we take at the beginning of each week is important. You have indeed ordained it. We are your body. You are the head of the church, and we are your people, and we're here to hear your word today. May it change us and form us into the likeness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, this is the passage that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. We began just before Christmas, and we're going to conclude today. I promise this will happen. Um, The the zeal of the Lord will see to that. (laughs) It's time for us to move on back into Colossians. But 
Indeed, this is timely for us because we live in an age in which we are buffeted by so many different things. The socioeconomic political strife that we're witnessing, the plagues and pandemics and the challenges faced with that, the unique challenges to our way of life here in the United States, all of these things have come together in a unique time and way to um, force us to begin to contemplate um, the fact that we should be people of hope, unlike the world. The world is in despair. The people live in fear. Fear has consumed the land. And indeed, it would be our temptation, is it not, to live in despair. That seems to be what many are doing. Indeed, that attitude, that mindset has infiltrated the church, sadly. Too many churches have closed their doors. Too many churches have altered the way that they proclaim the gospel. Too many churches have given up ground that they were never that they should have never given up, that the Lord would have never have given up. And so Isaiah here reminds us of the fact that even in times that seem to be overwhelming, times that seem to be difficult, times that seem to be um, uh, hopeless in all respects, that we should not despair. And we are not to despair. And this is indeed what we are called here to in Isaiah chapter 9 because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Calvin would note this. Whenever we see the gospel being persecuted and so many great troubles occurring, it seems from outward appearance that everything must be confounded. And it is true we can be shaken. And indeed, I think many have been shaken. But be of good cheer. The Lord is at work. Be of good cheer. The Lord has come. Be of good cheer. The Lord is reigning and ruling. Be of good cheer. The Lord will return. And this is certainly what Isaiah wanted us to be focused on. Indeed, Calvin, in preaching to his own congregation during difficult and challenging times, said this, We must keep in mind that God is in control of all such things and will work them out in his own good time, although we do not see it now. We must honor God by attributing all wisdom and power to him when it comes to directing matters for his glory and our salvation, even if it appears they are moving in the opposite direction. That is a way we must understand that God will direct all this world's confusion toward the salvation of his faithful, especially the persecutions of his church. And so with that in mind, we begin to go back and look at what Isaiah has said to us. We have taken the time to understand the context of what was taking place, the setting, if you will. That's important for us to know. Ahaz, the faithless king of a faithless people, brokering a deal with the Assyrian king, becoming basically a vassal, giving up the glories and the wonders and all of the promises that were attendant with the Davidic throne. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, you can see a unique colloquy between Ahaz and the Lord and the promises that, are remi- that he is reminded of there. And in Isaiah chapter 8, we have Isaiah's prophecy and his foretelling of the judgment that is going to come upon the king and upon the people for their faithlessness. Yet there is a faithful remnant in the midst of this difficult time and these challenging circumstances. And Isaiah gives them hope. Hope based upon a child that would come. Isaiah, looking forward, communicates to them this person, this child, this son of David that would come, who is indeed Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 9, the bad news communicated in basically chapter 8 is relieved. That light, dark motif that Isaiah uses so effectively, he begins to focus rather on the darkness but on the light the light that would come, and we see in verse 1 he talks about that, but, when there, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. And he goes on to talk in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And certainly Isaiah here is speaking both to the idea of these folks in terms of what they're experiencing, but also ultimately for the redeemed of God, the darkness that we're captured in by our fallenness, our depravity, our natural Binding to sin, if you will, our total depravity. Someone must deliver us from that. Well, Isaiah goes on to communicate that this God is the same God. The God that will do this is the same God that delivered the Israelites from the power of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, the same God who delivered Gideon from the Midianites. 
He's the same God who will win and has won the battle and has cleaned the battlefield for us and piled up the, the boots and the bloody robes into a pile. Into a, into a pile. And ultimately then that he is going to be a, 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 a God, a, a, a Messiah who reigns. He says in verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, emphasizing both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ, which is important. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so these are words of encouragement. These are words of hope to a beleaguered and defeated people, people who are living in fear, people who feel as if they are all alone, people who have been abandoned by their king, people who seem to be subject to the whims and the ways of the world rather than of Jehovah God. But here Isaiah says to them, listen, someone's coming. Someone's coming who you can rest and, and, and hope in, and that is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah takes great pains to describe to these people who this person is. And he, just, he ascribes to him four important names or four important descriptions that we looked at. And just by way of reminder, let's go back and just consider those briefly. Wonderful counselor. What a wonderful way to start off the description of this coming redeemer, this coming savior king. He is the wonder counselor, the supernatural counselor, giving supernatural counsel, which we have now for us in his word. Isn't it wonderful that unlike the folks to whom Isaiah was writing, that you and I have fully bound, complete copies of God's word? We have the New Testament. We have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds to even understand this counsel in a way that perhaps Isaiah couldn't even understand or comprehend. Do you appreciate that? And in the face of what we, in the challenges we face today, we need to rest confidently in the fact that we are not subject to someone who is capricious or just making stuff up on the go, who is just responding in some way that might be tricky or clever like Ahaz thought he was doing with the Assyrians. But no, one who has given and is indeed himself the very word of God. And so for us, that's something that we can take great confidence. We now know the fulfillment of this name. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that fantastic? I, I'm just overwhelmed by that. The very idea that what Isaiah was communicating is now held in my hands and is possessed by me internally through the Holy Spirit is remarkable. It's fascinating to me. You actually have the book of Wonderful Counsel. This is the wonderful counsel. It's not some mystical word that you wait to hear in the middle of the night. It's not some ex-cathedra communication from him to you exclusively, like so many people claim, which is nonsense. If God is speaking to you, it's only because you're reading the Bible out loud or you're listening to it on your Bible app. God does not do that. No, he gives us his counsel, his wonderful counsel. And so there's this picture for us painted by Isaiah of the beauty of the content of the counsel because the counsel is not only wonderful because of who communicates it, but because of its content. What does the Bible contain? It is the historical redemptive narrative of the one who would come, Jesus Christ, who would save his people from their sins. He would save unto himself a people unique. He would save them to, to bring them into his kingdom, a kingdom which has begun upon his resurrection and which the fulfillment will be fully realized when he returns. You and I are now partakers of this reign of the wonderful counselor. We are part and parcel of the very kingdom, the very hope that Isaiah was looking to and pointing these people to. You possess it. Live like it. That is the challenge of the day. This is why I decided to take the time to spend the amount of time that I have in this passage because I have a sense that that as the redeemed of God, oftentimes we forget all the wonders that he has displayed for us to ponder. In the Psalms, the psalmist would often go back and recount to the Israelites all the things that God had done for them. 
He, they would go back and retell all the deliverances, all the won battles, all the victories, all the things that seemed to be insurmountable that God provided. And so too Isaiah does for them, and so too I for you today, remind you of who we are and why we should be hopeful and who our great Redeemer is. He is a wonderful counselor. You have his manual in your hand. He's given it to you. You know, it's interesting to me, you go in to see a counselor. You know, you come in to perhaps see me for some issue. I don't hand you Corbin's black book on contracts. I don't give you, I give you bits of it. And you have to keep coming back to get bits of it more. (laughs) There is a method, we see. One must make a living. But God did not give it to you in dribs and drabs. You know, you may go to another type of counselor that you may spend years talking to. And they give you bits and pieces of information that you might be able to use and move forward with. But God has given us all of his word. We have all of the wonderful counsel. Well, we also consider the idea that he is the mighty God. This is the other name, the inscription that's given by Isaiah to this coming king. And so for me, this is important. And we could spend a lot of time on this. I could preach weeks on each one of these names, of course. But it suffice it to say that this term mighty God is important. Isaiah here communicating to these people who were faced with the invasion, the prophesied invasion of a very mighty kingdom, a very powerful king. And so Isaiah, through this name, is reminding his readers and his listeners of the fact that this king who comes and is coming is going to possess warrior strength. He alone will be able to free them from the bondage of sin, rescue them from the domain of darkness, break the power of canceled sin, set the prisoner free, and preserve us forever from any and all accusers. This is the mighty God. Rock of ages, cleft for me, the one in which I can hide, the one in which I can take great comfort, the one in which I can flee to in the face of great adversity. When all things seem lost, he is there waiting for me, always faithful, always the rock, always one in which I can hide and one in which I can always be confident that he will protect me. He is not a King Ahaz. He is not going to broker a deal that's going to harm me. He is not going to ever negotiate a detente that puts my liberty and my peace and my freedom in him in jeopardy. He is never going to do anything like that. Indeed, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 8 that he is so mighty that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Which moves into this next description that Isaiah uses, the idea of the eternal father or the everlasting father, depending on your translation. And this is an important, here what happens is that, that Isaiah begins to discuss the qualities or the conditions that will be created by this king. There is going to be a sense in which we are embraced by a father who loves us deeply and who is consumed with our preservation and our protection It speaks to his concern for the helpless, the care and discipline of his people and all, uh, and and his loving response to us. A a father who is loyal and, and, and cares deeply for us like a good godly father would do. But this is a perfect father, a father never tainted by sin, a father never consumed with pride or anger, a father who is never who's never acted out and lashed out in some way that's, that's not motivated in the proper way. No, he is a father that deeply cares, a father who will protect, a father who will stand in the door and keep the enemy out, a father who will always provide. The cupboards will always be full. We will always be cared for. This is that eternal father. The idea, too, is that this father is one who rules graciously and generously. This pattern of divine fatherhood is is described by Paul, as I've noted in Romans chapter 8. It's interesting, too, that Isaiah just doesn't 
communicate that he is a father, but that he is the eternal father. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age in which dads leave more often than they stay. It's the blight of our society. It's causing a great deal of problems for us as a nation. But here we find that this father is eternal. He will never abandon his fatherly prerogative or role. He will never leave us as orphans. He will never abandon us when the times are as, as difficult as they are. He will always be there. He is not episodic, but he is eternal. Ahaz would be just a temporal king. They come and they go. You never know what you're going to get next. But this eternal father stays with us forever and ever and ever. Keep in mind that these are facts. Isaiah is just not engaged in conjecture, but he is telling us exactly who this king is, what he will be like, what it will be like for us to be with him. We can draw from these names the experiences that we'll have based upon who he is as described. And so we look at the Prince of Peace. The idea of peace communicates the the, 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 the issue of being whole or complete, there's a sense of, of utter peacefulness under the reign of this particular king. This is also a name that speaks of the condition that the king will bring and really flows out of the picture that there will be no more war as communicated in verse 5. There's no conflict. No conflict in the, in the context of the tension that exists between God and man because of sin. Colossians and Paul and Colossians Paul describes us as those who are hostile in mind, in conflict with him. On a personal level, peace means fulfillment, well-being, freedom from anxiety, goodwill, harmony. It's the very opposite of tension and war and anguish. And this is this is for us. And with respect to God, this means we are no longer alienated from him. We are no longer at enmity with him. That is that state of fixed hostility that the Bible describes. That picture that we see of that person described in Romans chapter 3. And indeed, and if you want to take your Bibles, let's turn to Romans and let's just be reminded of, of this important principle in Scripture Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. Keeping in mind, we're focusing on the idea of this coming king being the prince of peace. The idea of peace. Why is, there, why is peace necessary? Peace is such a big deal. We talk about peace all the time. Neville Chamberlain would, would return from his negotiations with the Germans and to say that we have peace in our time. Others communicate to us about peace all the time. We had an entire generation of people in the 60s that were focused on peace. Just give peace a chance. That type of thing. But here is real, genuine peace. And it's, it's, it, the, the understanding of it, the significance of this peace is, is based upon you and I comprehending fully what the Bible says about us in terms of who we are by nature. And so Paul communicates that here in Romans chapter 8 where he is, is ultimately speaking to the issue of bondage that we are delivered from through Jesus Christ. And so in Romans chapter 8 verse 5 Paul says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind, look at verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God. For it, so it's at enmity with him. That's the Greek, that's the root of this, that state of fixed hostility. Ill will, if, 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 if you want, in terms of understanding it. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
And indeed, if you want to, we can turn over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Using scripture to help us to understand scripture. Because for me, for you to understand the impact and magnitude of the name Prince of Peace, you have to understand why peace is necessary. And you have to understand that when he's given this moniker, this title, that the peace is going to be perpetual in nature. We're going to see that in a moment through the words that Isaiah uses. But this is real peace. Now, I want to say something to you because this is often misunderstood. A lot of Christians think that when they get saved, everything is just going to be slap happy and silly. That you're going to get along with your aunts and your uncles and your spouse and your kids. That everything is going to change. But that's not the piece of which we're talking. Yes, can we as Christians incorporate the teaching of scripture into our personal relationships in such a way that it it might improve those relationships? Indeed. But that's not what the Bible is for. What we're understanding and what we're learning here is very important. And I wish... More pastors would take the time to do this. Isaiah is communicating a wonderful attribute, if you will, of this king. That is that he is the prince of peace that reconciles and rectifies the enmity between God and man. That's what's happening here. You and I, as the redeemed of God, know him as the Prince of Peace because we have been reconciled to the Father by him, according to Paul in Colossians. Indeed, Jesus Christ takes us and places us right in front of the Father and says, I am at peace with him. And God says, I am at peace with him because he is in Christ. And so this is what that Prince of Peace does. And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 7, we then begin to have a greater understanding of why the peace is necessary. Paul in Ephesians 2 writes as follows, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient." Of disobedience. Among them, we too all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath. Even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, because he is the Prince of Peace with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. You see, all of the tension, all of the things that Paul has described in Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 2 are rectified by the Prince of Peace. Jesus is not a socio-political solution to the problems of temporal peace. He is the solution to the spiritual battle that is going on and the resolution of the wrath that is present, and rightly so, by God toward sinners. This is what's going on. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why when you talk to people about Jesus Christ, you must get them to this baseline. You are under God's wrath. And you're going to be judged in accordance with that wrath. You know, it's interesting to me that there are opposites to these names that are just as real. He is not only mighty God, but he is the mighty judge. He is the justice of the universe. An attribute of God is wrath. We often emphasize love, but wrath is important too. You miss that piece, you miss it all. But he is the Prince of Peace. And so this is an important picture for us. Colossians 1.21, a passage that we're familiar with. And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind at enmity, again, that's a state of fixed hostility. Someone has to change that. Paul resolves that for us in verse 21 in Colossians, as we know. 
And although in, in verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. He brings about the resolution. There's tension in those passages. Palpable tension. In Romans 8, Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, there's an issue. There's a problem that has to be rectified. And Isaiah is saying to me and to you, listen, the one who is coming is the one who will bring peace between you and God. And that's important for us. Alec Motier in his commentary notes this, the Prince of Peace is himself the whole man, the perfectly integrated, rounded personality at one with God and mankind. As a Prince of Peace, these are qualities and conditions he will bring to his people. Now, as we move on in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, we, we begin to see Isaiah in this lengthy verse, verse 7, describe the nature of the rule and reign of this king, this one who would come. We see in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, such a majestic governor deserves a royal and unique kingdom which is exactly what Isaiah describes in verse 7. Notice the nature of this kingdom and government. First, it will have no end and will be ever expanding until it occupies all of time and space and until he rules over all. I love that idea. And I love that picture. You and I are now participants of that, not yet fully realized, but upon his resurrection, this kingdom become, began to be initiated, and you and I are now part and parcel of a reign that's attended by this very person that Isaiah is describing. It will have no end. And I like the idea of it being ever-expanding until it occupies all of time and space. Now, I'm not post-millennial, but certainly there is a sense in which this reign and this kingdom that only leaves two choices, by the way, folks. So this, is, this test is getting very easy. And if you're paying attention, you probably know where I'm at. It will have no end. It's ever expanding until it occupies all of time and space until he rules over all. His kingdom, like himself, will never suffer loss or change by any means or in any form. He is the mighty God, after all, right? He is the eternal father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Wonderful Counselor. Who's going to trump that? Well, not even Trump. No coups. No political conflict. No divided courts. No 5-4 decisions. Either way. No imperialism. No exploitation. There is rule. Of course there's rule. There's still governance. Governance is, is not abandoned. We don't become just, you know, I don't know, communists. Just wandering about willy-nilly, doing nothing. No, there's going to be rule, but it's solely for our benefit as he brings us to perfection in his kingdom. Notice, too, as well in verse 7 that this son has a right to rule. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this is important. This is something that Ahaz forgot. Isaiah, it's interesting that Isaiah would do this because in that faithful remnant, they're probably thinking to themselves, why on earth would Ahaz give up all that God had promised the Davidic throne? Why would he do that? Was not God faithful to David? Was not God faithful to the kingdom? Was not God faithful to his people? And so here Isaiah teases out the significance of the fact that there is not going to be an abandonment of the principles attendant with God's preservation of his throne. This king, this one who will rule, will do so in the context of all the fulfillment of all the promises attendant with those made to David and his lineage. 
That's important. That's very important. So Jesus, as described here, has a right to rule. Now, of course, this would make sense, would it not? Because God gave over to his son before the very foundation of the world a people peculiar unto himself, the elect. He sends Jesus Christ to redeem them, and he's, at some point in time, he's going to hand over to his son the title deed to the earth upon which he will rule and reign with them forever and ever. And so this idea of him reigning in this context is very important. Ahaz refused, refused to trust the promises of God with regard to the Davidic kingdom. But this son, but in this son, in this king, they will be fully realized. And, and here's we, here we see the Old Testament messianic enigma, if you will. How can a son of David be all that verse 6 and 7 says he is? Mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Well, it's because he is God. It is the truth that this very child and son would use to confound the Pharisees. And we see this in Matthew. If you want to turn to Matthew with me quickly. Matthew 24. I'm sorry, Matthew 22. I'm not going to Matthew 24 today. We'll get there. Gird up your loins. Matthew twenty two forty one. 41. So here, here you see what ultimately is why Christ is a stumbling block. The, the, the problem that the Pharisees are going to have with Christ. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So far, so good. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. I, I wish I could have seen their faces. Verse 45, If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Oops. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> you got to love that. But so here we see that the, the, the picture of this, this, this one who would rule and reign in the context of all that was promised that would be attendant with that throne. And you should also note as well the nature of the moral foundation of this government and reign. It will be justice and righteousness. So... We see that there will be no end to it. It's a perpetual kingdom. It will occupy all of time and space. It will be a throne, a kingdom that realizes the full promises that God gave over to David as it relates to the Davidic uh, uh, covenant that was made with him and, the, and, the, and the, his reign and rule. And now we're going to see that this is not going to be just some capricious dictatorship, but rather that this kingdom, that this king will reign with justice and righteousness this is the nature of the moral foundation of this government and reign now why is this this is really amazing this is so good right here why why is that you ought to be able to answer that if you understand the attributes of god it must be it's axiomatic it necessarily follows because of his divine holiness which will and must be perfectly manifested in justice, that is, true procedures, fair procedures, which reflect righteous principles, righteousness. So if, if a thrice holy God is the king, and that's what we're talking about here, understanding the deity of Jesus Christ, then we understand that necessarily righteousness and justice must flow out of him. It could not be anything but that. He is immutable. He doesn't change. He's not subject to the randomness of emotion and responses that way. His kingdom will always be one based on justice and righteousness. Now, we hear a lot about that today. No justice, no peace. 
you know, that type of thing. But in this kingdom, there will always be justice. There will always be peace because those are necessary qualities of the very king that governs and rules. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful thought that is for us. And so it will be, what? Forever and ever. That's what Isaiah says, from then on and forevermore. That does not change. All those things that he's just described, all those things that are attendant with this kingdom, one without end, one that's attendant with the, the, the blessings of the Davidic throne, one that's based upon justice and righteousness, those things will never end. They will never stop. What you and I are experiencing here today is just a flash in the pan. We are vapors, but this will last forever. This will last forever. Why? Why will it last forever? Well, because Isaiah tells me the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He will do it. God will see to it that this all comes about, and I love this idea. So what we have here is something that's significant. Isaiah grammatically switches from using the perfect tense so far which he's been using in verse 7 he shifts here to using the future tense he stands where he is looking forward and says it will all happen God will see to it now listen friends we know a lot of this already most of it there's just one piece that's left he's just got to come back that's it. We're two-thirds, we're three-quarters of the way there. 90% maybe, I don't know, 95. I don't know what your eschatology is, but I'm not inclined to wait a long time. I'm rather impatient. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so Isaiah here communicates this, this picture of the fact that this is going to definitely happen. And we know that the rest of it has happened, and so this is going to happen too. So you, know, you might want to think about that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word zeal here is important too. Zeal here means that type of jealousy that's part and parcel of true love, and especially of the Lord's love. Now, thus, oftentimes we struggle with these anthropomorphic ascriptions given to God. You know, it will say that God was angry, that God was jealous, that God repented. We have these descriptions, but they're used in a way to help us understand a significant point that's being made. And so this zeal is that type of jealous love that causes one another, a person to cling to another person, a man and a wife. I'm jealous for the love of my wife. She is jealous for my love. That's not wrong. That's just appropriate. Indeed, the scripture communicates to us that, it's, it's that, that that's an issue with regard to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look with me quickly to James. James chapter 4, verse 4. Look at the language. And in fact, James even captures it in the idea of that picture of unfaithfulness, that, that provocation that would give rise to jealousy. In the context of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In James 4.4 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so there is this, there's the picture too of God jealously longing for our affection. And indeed, even in the Song of Solomon... You have, you have passages that describe the passionate affection, even the jealous affection of the two lovers described in that book. Now that book is ultimately written not to be a torrid afternoon in the Bible, but rather to communicate Christ's love for the body of Christ. Now certainly it gives a picture of a healthy, loving relationship between a husband and a wife. But the book is written for the purpose of you and I understanding how significant and how wonderful it is to be part of the body of Christ and how much Jesus Christ loves the body of Christ. That's what the Song of Solomon is about, ultimately. And so when we understand it, we see this, the love, the zealous, the jealous love of God will see to it. It will come to pass. 
What we're being told here by Isaiah is that Christ's love will brook no rival and is provoked by disloyalty. That's what we see in James 4, 4, right? You adulteresses, do you know not, no, do not know that friendship with the world is to be at enmity with God? This fervent love is a, is a love that, that moves the Lord to make his people's cause his own. I love this idea that he, he loves us so much that he came and he gave himself for us. What type of love does that? The, com- the passionate commit- commitment of his, of his divine nature to, to, fill, to fulfill his purpose for us. And if you know Christ, you've experienced this type of zealous, jealous love firsthand. Not, not reckless love like some people say today and the nonsense that you hear from the quasi-intellectuals and pseudo-Christians of our day. No, it is a, it's a love with a purpose and a focus, a love that will not be thwarted, a love that will, be, will not be stymied in any way. It will see the fruition of all that it intended, and that is our redemption. He went to the cross because he loved us. He died on the cross because he loved us. It was the zeal of God that brought it about. Do you understand this? This is so wonderful. Was it not this type of zeal that brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into his realm and reign of light? Was it not the zeal of God that broke the enmity between you and God through his son, Jesus Christ? Is it not this very seal that will keep you and sustain you through all of life's trials and which will never end, come what may? The zeal of God will see to it, will bring it about. What a, what a wonderful thought. What a wonderful passage. What a glorious, hopeful message this is. The zeal, and it's just, and I like the, the language that Isaiah uses here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's not an if come, it's not a might or a maybe, it's a will accomplish this. Now, in the, law, in the legal world, those words mean a lot. We argue a lot of times over whether we should use the word will or shall or might or maybe. Isaiah here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells me it's sealed, it's guaranteed, it's done. And all of this zealous determination is of Yahweh, the Exodus God, whose very nature it is to save his people and overthrow Satan. All of this is backed by divine omnipotence. He is pledged to achieve this, the advent and kingdom of the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. And the fruition of it is communicated to us in the book of Revelation, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 and conclusion. One of my favorite chapters of all the Bible. And we see here what Isaiah is speaking to. We see here the, the, the wonder and the glory of all of this. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. John here in this vision Understanding that we are looking at prophetic, apocalyptic language draws us a very vivid picture. He says in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And I think when he says with a loud voice, it was one of those voices that thunders. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Imagine John thinking about this. Where is Christ? What happened? What's going on? And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of who? David. There you go again 
has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of the things attendant with his descriptions in Isaiah 9. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the heaven and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. There you go. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will make it happen. That's guaranteed. Now the question is, do you know this person? Do you know Jesus Christ? I hope that you do. Because ultimately every knee is going to bow. And everyone's going to have to be, those outside of Christ are going to have to give an account and have to reckon with this king. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? And are you hopeful? If you do know him, I hope that this has moved you from a state of fear and anxiety and despair into a place of confident, restful hopefulness in Jesus Christ. I hope that's happened. Let us live in this way. Let us live like we're under the reign of this king. Because we are. We are. We're realizing this. And someday we're going to know it fully and completely in all of its full orb splendor. I can't wait for that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for these wonderful descriptions. Thank you for these beautiful passages. Thank you for your zealous love for us. Uh, a love that will not let us go a love that holds us and keeps us even when we sin, even when we fall, even when we fail, even when we stumble, even when we turn on you. The type of love that says, and by the way, tell Peter to come too. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you so much for that. We look forward to the day when all of these things are fully realized. Thank you for revealing so much of it to us, Lord. May we live in the reality of its revelation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.